Welcome back to the Elevate podcast. I'm delighted again to be joined by Nick Hudson, who's the chair and founder of the Pandemics Data and Analytics organization uh, known as Panda, to take a look at the critical post-COVID-19 developments. We're going to focus on the increasingly centralized approach to global governance, explore some of the potential long-term consequences of these developments, and hopefully explore some ideas about what we can begin to do about this. Now, Nick and I haven't caught up for a while. We've both got a glass of red. Uh, so join us for this fireside conversation as we chew the fat on the state of the world and start to explore some of the present challenges, but also hopefully some of the solutions and opportunities that may lie ahead. Nick, it's great to see you again. Good to be back again, Dan. So I'm looking forward to grappling with a couple of big things, big, big, big issues on this, this, okay. uh, this conversation. I've got three C's that are kind of on my mind at the moment. Centralization. Uh, witnessing everything from the, the, the latest developments with the World Health Organization, with the pandemic treaty and the international health regulation amendments, looking at that kind of ac accumulation of power post-pandemic. But obviously that's only a, yep. a, fra a fraction of the, the broader uh, trend towards centralization. The second is the capture of institutions, as we've witnessed over the last few years, looking at science, education, academia, uh, and various other elements of society. And then lastly, the role of censorship. And, and literally minutes before you and I picked up to join this conversation, I learned that I've been banned for a further 90 days on Facebook for uh, actually making, uh, I, I put something in jest <laughs> as just a, as, as a critique of one of the climate stories. Um, that that got me struck off in 90 days. So the, not only can, we can't talk about the big C, the new big C of COVID, we can debate what, what is the real big C, whether it's cancer, COVID or climate change, who knows. But uh, I'd like to grapple with some of these issues, these three Cs over the course of our conversation. Sure. So let's talk about centralization. Um, you know, I think in our last podcast where we met face to face, you, you talked about Panda's work, looking at the um, the PESL project, uh, looking at these political, economic, social, technological, legal, economic, uh, environmental uh, issues. The centralization that we're witnessing, the centralization of power that was amassed during COVID nineteen across many dimensions, is 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 perhaps my largest concern. Could you share your views on the kind of post-COVID trajectory in terms of how that kind of centralization has continued to emerge on the trajectory that we saw during the, the kind of core COVID chapter? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tough one for me to approach exclusively in a post-COVID kind of context because in my mind, there's been a strong um, centralizing trajectory in place uh, since the Second World War, more or less. And we can see that in the ever-increasing share that national governments make in terms of their share of GDP. Um, and that's, that's been an inexorable rise in almost all places in the world, but especially in the West. And... <clears throat> In the wake of COVID, there are attempts to further that on a global level. That's uh, also not something new. I mean, the United Nations and um, the multiple supranational organizations have obviously much longer histories than um, since, since COVID. Um, so, so for me, th there's a <clears throat> there's a very long story here, and it's seems to me to be a weakness, a structural weakness in democracies that is tied up with the problem that there are always Pareto distributions. There, there, it, it's wherever you look in nature, in society, in cultures, there are Pareto distributions. And when you try and flatten those using one person, one vote, what happens is you create an incentive for politicians to promise more benefits and you're assured of those benefits uh, being voted for. And that leads to this burgeoning government sector. Now, I have I pointed out in a recent podcast that is not, necessary, not necessarily the case if you want to try, if, you, if you're of a mind to flatten distributions, that you need uh, the, the, the flows from 
tax revenues to be directed through a bureaucracy. You could simply redistribute directly to um, other, other citizens. And I, I'm not advocating this necessarily as a great policy response, but it, it's not necessarily the case that you ought to direct everything, all the, the expenditure decisions, the allocation decisions through governments. But that is the route that has, as a matter of fact, been pursued. And now we see that we, are, we face these international health uh, regulations, um, the amendments to those regulations that are being proposed, which bestow draconian subversions of national sovereignty upon the World Health Organization. And it seems to me that the only response of politicians who've even bothered to respond to the many questions relating to this issues, these issues has been to deny that those are, are in fact what the regulations achieve. So we have this, this idea of, uh, of uh, sorry, the, the evidence of centralization actually having happened and the designs upon, or the, the proof of evidence that there are designs on continuing it. That's sort of the first part. The second part is there's, we, we know in theory and in practice that centralization is completely incompatible with human flourishing. Um, authoritarian systems, top-down systems prevent the, uh, the only mechanism of knowledge creation from working, which is uh, a, a natural evolution by way of competition in the field of ideas. So you, we, the only way in which knowledge grows is by competing ideas, duking it out in the, in the complexity of the real world, and those that survive going on to prosper and spread, and those that um, do not survive, you know, being extinguished. Um, and that, that is the reason why centralization is incompatible with, with human flourishing. So there's a kind of aspect to centralization that is fundamentally inhumane or, or um, yeah, I think that's a pretty good word for it. Uh, there's, a, there's a Malthusian aspect to centralization itself. Um, if you are promoting centralization, then at, then at the same time, you are promoting the absence of growth, the absence of improvement, the absence of progress. Um, now, of course, the people who promote centralization uh, and, and uh, all of the, the sort of authoritarian ideas that come with it, I think a lot of them actually believe that human beings need to be constrained, um, that were it not for the geniuses at the top of the pyramid, we face certain extinction owing to yeah, use, uh, overuse of resources or the, the, the terrible dangers of carbon dioxide. Um, that kind of idea is very prevalent in certain quarters. So they, they believe that they're doing something good for, for what uh, it is a bit unclear. If that's why they, they have these ideas like terracotta, the idea that the earth needs to be protected, even though it's an inanimate object, you know. So it's not, it's not, too clear why, why the, or, or to what ends they want to constrain human beings. But it's very much a vein of thought that, that is pronounced at the moment. And to me, it's the biggest threat to, to mankind. We, we, we need to reverse this story because decentralization was accomplished was, uh, was accompanied by an incredible period of human flourishing that the, unlike any the world had ever seen, plummeting rates of poverty, um, increases in life expectancy and quality of life on any number of metrics that have taken place over several hundred years. So the, what, what is at stake is pretty much everything that is good in the world. Yeah, I would concur with you, Nick. And the I've been grappling with the, and I'm glad you zoomed out on the conversation from the narrow view of the post pandemic, which 
again, if we by doing so, by zooming out, we can look at whenever there's been a global event in recent history, whether it's World War II and the, the formation of the United Nations, you know, when there's a global kind of shock or an event, you see that kind of amassing of more centralized coordination. You see post any major crisis, usually an amassing of power. So there's almost some predictable things. Even if the response to COVID-19 hadn't been so authoritarian, I still think there would have been similar patterns uh, to what we're seeing right now, but perhaps not to the degree that we're witnessing if it hadn't been for the, the, the kind of normalization of those authoritarian styles of governance and leadership. But I look at the kind of cause and effect dynamics here, and I, I, I wonder, I, I look at the and ponder upon what are some of the drivers that are causing this longer term journey towards centralization? Is it because life is becoming more complex and there are greater uncertainties as we develop new technologies? Is you know this this fragmentation of risk? Is is this is this something that kind of compels a desire for greater centralization? Is there the human condition element of, 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 of this kind of grandiose inner power that one has the ability, this almost narcissistic uh, view that, you know, amongst elites, we know better. But then on the other side of the equation, Nick, I'm also looking at the other part of the equation, which is why certain portions of the population seek centralization, why they almost take a view that they want their well-being taken from the, and we're seeing these increasingly with and with young people now this kind of victimhood whereby they look to the state to resolve whatever issue that they are facing rather than taking personal responsibility and taking initiative and you know being a catalyst for change i'm not denying that there are systemic and structural elements that have caused weaknesses in 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 populations and, and and cohorts of people but the idea that the state or the the central bodies are the ones that intervene as opposed to a decentralized approach to this so i'm trying to grapple with both dynamics here you know what are, what are, what's really what's un, what are the underlying drivers what's the you know what's what's causing the pull that within the river if you so to speak do you have any thoughts on what the kind of on either side of that equation, what's really driving this? Yeah, yeah I, I have many thoughts, and in, it, it, I think the it, the story is complex. Um, there, there's a, a definite decline in education, so more people around who don't have a clue when it comes to critical thinking and and an ability to or any ability to. Uh, see nuance and um, and subtlety and complexity. There's this this desire to talk about the world in a series of just so stories, um, and I think there's also an, a very pernicious undercurrent of safety culture that that yeah. that worsens that. Um, this sort, this sort of notion that whenever something goes wrong, there, there ought to be a rule or a, uh, an authority put in place to prevent that wrong thing from ever happening again. And uh, the, the reality of life as being kind of almost necessarily full of uh, hardship and joys um, is lost on many people. I think there's a and this idea that anything that goes wrong is somebody else's fault and no sense that there is such a thing as bad luck, uh, the vicissitudes of, of life are um, something that we can erase, um, that kind of idea. And a, a tendency to blame rather than to say, okay, well, I, I missed that one coming. How do I improve myself so that next time something like that comes along, I won't be hit on the nose quite as hard. Um, so it's a very, I think it's a very complex story that the ideas related to safety are all over the, the show. And I, I think there's a, a, a terrible interplay between crisis creation, crisis fabrication, and the projection of fear narratives and this background sort of safety culture 
that, that, that makes the, the fear narratives effective and the crisis fabrication effective. And the list of fabricated crises is very long. Yeah, and it's not just crisis fabrication, and it's crisis amplification as well, you know, particularly now in the digital age. And, and you know, I mentioned I got censored. It was, it, the response was in to a post that had basically said that this, this whole south part of England where I live is going to disappear into the ocean in the next 10 years. And oh, I said, because well, of rising sea level. Because of rising sea levels. Oh, no, now, yeah. <laughs> now, now, now if, 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 if the fear lowers house prices, then, you know, we can probably pick ourselves up a nice little place on the, on the waterfront. Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but this, this, this kind of fear-based hmm. safetyism is, I, I think is a driver again in, in the conditions of fear, it's almost a child, you know, as a new parent now, I see it when the child is afraid. What do they do? They turn immediately to look for their parent. Mm. They, like my, my boy, Zach, you know, he's a courageous little chap, that boy, but he does have his little moments. And um, you kind of see that in the adult population now, it's kind of become a cultural norm that we, we turn to the authority to, to, to clamp down, whether it's on free speech because people said things that... And it, I, I almost see some of the spats around free speech, almost like in a playground type manner that, you know, this per going home and complaining that this person said this to you in the playground and what, what, what can mummy and daddy do about it? And it's, I, I don't want to be mean to people, but it does almost feel like there's a childishness to this. And it, I, 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 wonder, I often wonder, and I look back to, with rose tinted spectacles to my kind of youth and think, you know, the pre-digital realm, I ask myself, had, had we evolved as a society and as a culture pre-digital to a point of relative maturity, and has that maturity been somewhat set back by the emergence of digital technologies? Because adults don't behave like adults in the digital realm, but that doesn't just stay within the digital realm. We now see this highly child-adult relationship between adults and the, the state and central authority. So I'm curious what you think around our evolution as a culture, as a society, and whether we've devolved within the, re the midst of digital technology. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you, you, you've got to pick your, um, the, the level of granularity at which you look at the problem. <laughs> yes, um, yes, yes. You know, are we looking at a, a, a decade or two? Are we looking at hundreds of years? You, know, you really need to check to test that sort of resolution when you're, when you're um, considering a, a a, a tricky question like that, you know, I, I, I think that technology affords enormous potential for decentralization. And of course, you see that as a, a theme when it comes to um, digital currencies, Bitcoin and so on, uh, the scope is there, the internet had great promise. Of course, there have been attempts to centralize, effective attempts to centralize and to censor and so on and to control narratives. Um, and <clears throat> It, it yet we also see that automation in general can also can can be be used to centralize so so there's a battle between between mm. the two whether we've matured and evolved um, culturally I, I would say not materially that we revisit problems every generation in different ways um, but I, I would say gradually yes. The, the, there are improvements. Uh, I mean, if your starting point is 1700 and your ending point is today, <laughs> yes, then yes. you have to conclude that, <laughs> yes, that, yes. Um, that we have developed. But if your starting point is 1970 and your ending point is today, then I think you might conclude that, we, that we've regressed. Hmm. Um, the, but the generalization doesn't have to be, you know, massively true to make the observation that the, 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 the general direction of travel towards a kind of integration of corporate oligopolies with the state is an incredibly poisonous and pernicious idea that, that we ought to resist strenuously. And that, that it, it's not a conspiracy. It's a it's a straightforward collusion <laughs> yes, that's yes, going on. 
yes. It's happening right in front of our faces, in the public eye. There's no conspiracy. And we yet we we so we so we need to talk about it. We need to yes. point it out. Yes. And we, we need to um begin to exert political pressure against this. I was very pleased to listen to the the um candidacy announcement of um Robert F. Kennedy. Um wonderful, wonderful speech. It's just such a pleasure yes. to hear a politician making an intellectually honest and interesting and sophisticated kind of speech after all of the droll nonsense pumped out by Biden and Trump and Obama and, and the Bushes. And I mean, I mean really, I, it, it, it's been, uh, Obama was kind of a, a floral, florally, um, a flowery orator. So he sort of sounded good in a, a superficial way, but you've never heard anything emptier. Mm. And of course, Trump and Biden were just ridiculous. It, it's just such a relief to hear somebody stand up with something to say and go, right, you know, he's not just throwing out sound bites. He's actually treating his audience as if they're intelligent and mature human beings with the potential to learn and to think about the world differently and to gain new perspectives. It was a breath of fresh air. And I, of course, I, I mean, I've spoken with the guy directly on, in, um, as a result of the whole COVID story and, and I have much respect for him. But I was surprised at how surprised I was at that feeling of refreshment, that yes. feeling of just being back in sanity when he spoke, of, of connecting with um, the, the, the good in humanity. Yes. Yes. I, I watched it too, Nick, and I was incredibly moved. Yeah. And Fist pump stuff, you know? Yes. I was very, and I, it led me to feel a sense of hope. But but uh, it would be in fact it'd be interesting to talk about the, the p potential challenges and pitfalls on the road ahead on that journey in a moment because we know that the the very architecture of the machinery that we've just been talking about is is hardwired to treat uh, such a threat to the incumbent authority as a, as a virus you know they they will will try to eliminate the the immune system of the system will yes. try to, to eliminate the threat. That, that's um, obviously a concern. That's a concern that I'd like mm. to talk about in a moment. But um, I'm, I'm reminded of um, a conversation between Joe Rogan and uh, Brett Weinstein in 2020. And uh, Brett had talked about his ploy uh, for transforming politics in America. He called it the dark horse duopoly or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, what we need is a central left and I'd be interested to talk about these kind of labels around politics with you, because I have um, listened to one of our recent interviews where you, you, you discuss the nuance around how we speak in terms around conservatism, uh, conservatism and liberalism and, mm. and the importance of, of that, that dialogue. Um, but before we come to that, um, Brett talked about having two candidates, highly integral candidate, uh, candidates, one center left, one center right, and to, to pitch them effectively against each other. So whichever candidate wins, ultimately they, they represent the same vision and the same values and uh, core um, ethos um, mm. and suggested that once the incumbent prime minister comes into effect, they still work together in, uh, in, in, a, in, in, co in collaboration rather than against one another. And I do wonder whether there is hope of that in the US, whether we could see two strong, politically, historically politically opposed candidates that could end up vying for the, for the presidency. Yeah, I remember, I remember listening to that and I'm very skeptical about such a <laughs> schema for the, for the main reason that I think the left-right dichotomy is a false one. Um, it, it basically, it, it, the simplest possible analysis I can provide to argue that point is to is to suggest that the, the left-right spectrum um, smashes together two spectra. Uh, the, the first spectrum is the spectrum between liberalism and authoritarianism, because 
it it it's ridiculous to think of conservatism as as the opposite of liberalism. They're they're two completely incompatible constructs. They're they're incommensurate. Uh, the opposite of liberalism is authoritarianism, and the the second spectrum that is that is collapsed into the left right story is the spectrum of that relates to pace of change, which is conservatism versus being a revolutionary. So to be to conserve or to revolt, uh, to, it's to do with the pace of change in society. And at the time of the French Revolution, the left-right story made sense because the authoritarians were conservative and the liberals were revolutionary. So people who rejected centralization, sov the sovereignty of the monarch, um, authoritarian rule, and revolted against it, were on the side of liberalism. And, and that was left politics sensibly described, and right authoritarian conservatism um, was a sensible construct. But once that revolution had come and gone, that spectrum no longer made sense because what replaced it was a relatively liberal world, one where um, monarchs were, their wings were clipped, their powers were, were um, uh, trimmed significantly, um, notions of liberty and human rights and uh, civil liberties uh, came to the fore, Democ democracy rose as a construct. And at that point, if you were conserving something, from then on, if you were conserving something, it was a liberal order, not an authoritarian order. So, so my view, unpopular in many quarters, is that the left-right spectrum ceased to be a legitimate way of describing politics several centuries ago. Two, 200, what, what, what is it? Uh, yeah, um, call it from the 19th century to today, so 200 years ago. And I don't think it's at all useful as a way of uh, summarizing any kind of coherent viewpoint. So I, I reject the left-right spectrum altogether. I think it's useful to talk about uh, liberalism versus authoritarianism. Um, and there's a whole critique there. And I also am not an, an extremist. I, I veer towards the, to, towards liberal cons, the liberal construct rather than the authoritarian one. And I veer to, on the other spectrum, I veer towards conservatism rather than towards a revolutionary progressivism. Um, and that is out, not, not because I don't like change or I don't like progress. I think everybody likes progress. But because I am very respectful of how complex the world is. And I understand that making wholesale changes to complex systems is extremely dangerous. We can't predict with any ease at all how the, the changes we make will actually play out in the real world and whether they'll be har harmful or helpful. So I have an intuitive conservatism when it comes to manhandling complex systems. Um, but even that doesn't fit nicely into you know left or right because I'm a tree hugger. I, I, I love to preserve, to conserve ecologies, um, in, and I do not like to see wholesale changes to rainforests and wetlands and whatever. They're complex systems. I respect them. I think they ought to be conserved. We don't know what the effects of buffeting those systems will be. Um, yet I'm also completely alienated by the whole drive towards this model of um, zero, uh, what, what's it called, net zero, net zero and uh, yeah. climate change um, fanaticism because that involves massive changes to complex systems. And I think the whole narrative around this little molecule and its potential to wreak havoc is nonsense. So they're, they're using, to, they're, they're extracting that from massively simplified mo models of complex systems that are obviously propagandized, manipulated, um, the product of bad signs. And um, <clears throat> I'm not, so I'm not taken up by that kind of uh, globalist environmentalism.
which I, I basically think that the biggest ecological disaster of them all would be the implementation of net zero policies. That, that would lead to a destruction of ecologies and a diversion of resources away from real environmental conservationism um, in, a, in, a, in a most harmful fashion. So, so just to try and wrap that uh, analysis up, <clears throat> no, I don't think that position, positioning candidates as centralist on a left-right spectrum makes any sense. You'll just get two, different, two slightly different flavors of absolute nonsense. Um, we need to recognize that the real talking points are about centralization and decentralization, as you started the talk with, and about the pace of change that we want to see in, in society. Those are, those are two much more uh, interesting um, uh, stories to approach. And I, I think if, so if you change the spectra, would I be interested in seeing two candidates who are close together on the spectrum? Yeah, I guess. I don't like uh, extreme voices shouldn't really ever sell, right? Yes. Um, so, but, and then, but, but I rather think that once you've made that decision where, okay, we're debating the level at which society should be centralized, um, then, then it gets, the debate gets a bit more interesting, but I don't want the candidates to be too close together so that they could basically be an excuse for one another. I mean, to some extent, we, what we've witnessed is that it doesn't really matter whether there's a Republican or a Democrat in, in power in America, all the important things deteriorate in the same direction at more or less the same pace. That because we have uh, allowed centralization to, to um, go too far. Yeah. Now, I'm interested to unpack. So there's a few things I'd unpack, I would want to unpack here. So I, I like your point on, on, on that kind of concept that, that, that Brett's put forward. I also think your point around the net zero piece, particularly in the wake of what we've witnessed with COVID, it should be a stark lesson that excess human intervention into natural systems has a catastrophic adverse effect. And that's one of my deepest, outside of the authoritarian nature of the net zero propositions and the very deeply restrictive policies and erosion of freedoms, I, I have a deeper concern of its impact upon those natural ecosystems. And my, yeah. my fear is, once again, we'll see uh, that excess interventionism creates more harm than good. Uh, and those unintended consequences become very dramatic. Um, but I, 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 I'm curious, the left, the left right discussion, I, I, I'm interested to play more with, because mm -hmm. if you think about some of the traits associated with, and again, it'd be interesting to see if you associate these with perhaps the vertical of authoritarianism versus liberalism, but the idea that the left is typically more collectivist, the right is more individualistic, the redistribution of wealth desires on the left versus the retention of wealth on the right, the idea of um, protectionism on the left and free trade on the right. Where do you see these kind of more historical? No, I, don't, uh, I, just, you know, I just don't think that that analysis is correct. Uh, uh, if I gave to you um, a, a, a conservative, uh, let's call it um, religious figure and a list of dogmas that the religious figure would impose on society, um, you would describe that person as being on the right, you know. Um, so I, I don't, I don't go with this idea that the, the left-right paradigm does not make sense, and I, I just don't think it's useful to analyze that collection of attributes that you've recited in terms of left-right. I, I just outright reject the construct of left and right. So we can talk about, you know, there are people who would, for example, vote Republican um, in America or Tory in the UK, who want to see their will imposed. They are author authoritarians. And they're people who would vote uh, Labour or Democrat who want to see their will imposed. That's the authoritarian strain. And mm -hmm. so in this, this nebulous uh, story of left and right, you've got authoritarians on both, in both camps. You've also got revolutionaries in both camps, you know, people who would change something so uh, very fast. So there are um, 
extreme voices that, that detect in the current state of affairs a, an enormous problem that they want to abolish or, or, or completely alter in some way in, in very short order. They're revolutionary. Um, so <clears throat> I, I just think that it, it, it's almost what you just said to me is the illustration of the problem. You know, the, the moment you've presented it that way, that the, the left is this way and the right is this way and that's the problem and, and you know, that, we, that the left is, is typically more about the, the common good or the greater good or the... the I, I, just, I just don't think that those uh, little um, just-so stories help us in understanding the world and how we want to be in it, what we want uh, for for society that would enable greater human flourishing. I mean, yes. can we agree that greater human flourishing is, is, is a goal? I'm not sure that we can because there are plenty of people out there who seem to be of a mindset that says that the humans are the chemical scum on the surface of a very beautiful planet and that the, the more of them is a bad idea. The antinatalists. Um, I, I read an interesting article today about uh, pronatalists. Pro Elon Musk and, and friends who have lots of resources and uh, I think Elon Musk has fathered 10 children or something like that, you know. Now, I have some sympathy with that view, um, much more than I have with antinatalism. Um, so so I, I kind of balk at the, the idea of uh, this, this sort of idea that, that humans are the, the evil in the universe. I think humans are the only, the human brain, the human mind is the most important thing to conserve and protect in the universe because everything else is completely done. There's no, there's this idea of artificial intelligence, I think is a misnomer. Um, so I, I just don't see anything approaching the splendor and um, potential and fecundity and generativity of the human mind. That, that for me is the most beautiful thing in the universe. Yes, I, I'm with you. Bigger things, more spectacular things, more faster things, heavier things, whatever. But they're dumb as can be. A quasar, you know, is spectacular. It's large. It would crunch any human mind in its near vicinity. But it's as, as inert, as, as uh, ungenerative as a thing can possibly be. The only, the only thing in the entire known universe, in the observable universe, that has ever been found to create new explanations, new ideas, to be inventive, to be generative, is the human being. Yes. This regard for humans as some kind of menace, as some kind of, um, yeah, the chemical scum on the, the surface of, a, of the, the pale blue dot, is uh, a, a, it's a terrible construct. I'm, I'm, I live in the opposite camp. I, I, I share that view. And, and also, even on the left-right paradigm, I'm with you. To me, it's a social construct. It's, and, and, and it's become an extreme social construct now. And it, it's not really about what left or right means. And, and the guys at Trigonometry took a very interesting view on this, saying that we now have two groups of people. We have the group of people who are in favor of the current thing and we have the group who oppose the current thing and it's it's really it's really a, a way of creating division and polarity and and it's it's evident that we have become increasingly polarized and some would say by design again as a and some would say as a side effect of of, yeah. of centralization and again there's lots of nuance to that I, I speak of the importance of recapturing language you know um, as with the liberal, you know, so the liberal conservative dichotomy is a nonsense. We must stop using it. We must stop allowing people to call themselves liberal when they are in fact authoritarian. We must stop allowing ourselves to abuse the liberals as libtards and so on. Um, when in fact the the viewpoints that we hold are liberal, <laughs> you know, we must yes. just it, 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 we need to recapture language and start speaking in a more coherent fashion about the, the, um, the way in which we approach socio-political problems. And I, I see the potential for great, for great unification in all of this because the, the speech everywhere has, has become so deranged 
that's kind of what I was getting at. Like to, to listen to RFK um, as he got up and delivered this, just it was just an interesting and engaging talk and I didn't detect harm or threat or malice or greed. It was just a conversation about how we could go about solving problems, um, gradually improving society, um, in, in, I hate to use the phrase, but making the world a better place. It's been so long since I heard any politician give a talk of any such, in, in, even vaguely approaching that kind of stature. And, and that's it. He's, he's, he's beginning a project of recapturing language. He's pointing to the real problem. Um, and he mentioned it really early in his talk. He said, we are looking at the merger of the corporate and the governmental and that's the problem and he's right yes so that needs to be the talking point and you, you see if you set that if you set that up as the discussion i'd like to, i'd like to see a person on the left or in the liberals or in the defend the idea no it's great we want to see the merger of corporations and governments if you make that the talking point I think you'll realize there are people that there are few people who actually think that that's a good idea. They don't. They might. The policies that are being thrown around by those those fascists, because that's what they are. You know, when, when you fascism is the merger of the corporate, the large large corporations with governments, and so when 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 you the, what the fascists do is try and make sure that the that the talking point is about anything other than fascism, about anything other than the merger. Of large corporations with the states, they want to they, they want to make the talking point anything else. Hence, these crazy, just absolutely pointless discussions about trans rights and and climate change and COVID. They're just stupid. Uh, uh, you know these fabricated threats that that everybody must talk about instead of the real problem. So. So you, you get somebody who's going to shine a light on the real problem. I, I think you'll say you'll see people everywhere agreeing that this isn't that this is a problem and, and that we need to we need to address it. If you can get them to talk about that problem instead of you know whether men should be allowed to pee in women's toilets, yes. you know. Yes, yes. I, I think you're right. And I've been, this is something that I've been laboring on myself is trying to understand that thin wedge between the people who are in favor of the current thing and the people who are opposed to the current thing. What are those things that we would share in common? Yeah. Um, because even if you have common values, uh, the, when it comes down to the means by which things are attained, there is obviously going to be different views. Um, but the reality is when we look at the root causes of many of the issues we're facing, the, the, the corporate capture, not just of state, but of institutions is, is one of those fundamental problems, which begs the question, how do we continue that dialogue and open that dialogue up? And RFK Jr. in his speech goes a long way to starting that conversation particularly as he's standing as a Democrat, you know, he's, he's talking to uh, an existing population of people who perhaps have drifted uh, away from those core conversations, primarily in the first instance. I think he'll attract a lot of people from traditional public Republican uh, voters as well, actually. Um, but, but, but what other mechanisms do you think are necessary? Because we can't, again, fall into the trap now. Because in, in times like this, people look for heroes. And it's not to say that heroes can't exist or don't exist. But it's, it's, it's people often look outside themselves for the change they wish to see hmm. and abscond okay. their own responsibility. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to unpack how this can be broadened. So then, then I must, I'm going to shine the light on my own soul, so to speak. Yes. Um, I, I've come to realize a li little too, in an embarrassingly slow fashion, that I'm easily detracted, distracted by um, non-issues. So there are these side issues in, in the world 
they're side issues because they're, they're, they're not of massive social consequence. They're of consequence to certain individuals. In this category, I would pile in um, you know, trans rights, abortion, um, even something like the death penalty. You know, I, I have strong views against the, the, the death penalty, for example, but I mustn't get distracted by those side issues because, because what they serve to do is to move the mind away from the important ones. So we've mentioned the centralization, decentralization problem. We've mentioned the fascism problem, the integration of corporations and governments. Um, there, there are other uh, enormously important issues. I, I think, for example, the, a very important discussion to be had is the scale variance of optimal political organization. Um, it's certainly the case that some degree of um, what was, I forget the term you used when you were describing the left just now, uh, sort of group um, consciousness. What did you Collect say? Collectivism. Yes, of collectivism. Yep. Collectivism is important at some level of organization. We, we should acknowledge that, be happy to acknowledge that. But it, it becomes less important as scale increases. You know, that idea that, that there's a scale variance to optimal political organization that in my household I'm a communist and I should be one. Everybody should have the same quality of food and healthcare in my household. But I, at the level of the World Health Organization, I'm an anarchist. I do not want somebody in Geneva uh, telling everybody in the world to do one thing and one thing only. Um, so that's a useful topic. That's worth talking about. Um, and I, so, so I, I think that having a discipline of continually shining the light on the big problem, the big problems, and not being distracted by these smaller ones, is that's, that's key. That's really important. Yeah, I, I think that's so key because it's, they're, they're, in many ways, a lot of them are side effects of the main problem. And they fall, therefore, they, they almost seem then become interlinked. So we're, we're talking about symptoms of the problem yeah. as opposed to the problems and then the root cause of the problems. And it's, that's, that's, we were running an, uh, an activist workshop in, in the UK uh, during the course of the, key, the, 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 the height of lockdowns. And we were looking at this, how our tendency when in pain is to look for the simplest, shortest solution to that pain. We look for paracetamol, painkillers, we don't address the question of what's really wrong, what, what, what's my body really telling me? And we don't look further into what's my lifestyle choices and yeah. other variables. Because, of course, it takes much longer concentrated focus to influence the core of our health as opposed to just taking a pill. To... So in times like this, we, we often stick to the symptoms because it's the most readily available it's, it's the most noticeable on the surface. It's, you know, when we've got the pain or the headache or the, 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 the physical ailment, that's the first thing we pay, our, our body is paying attention to. But we're not then in the moment saying, what do I need to do to ensure this doesn't happen again? And how do I create longevity? And I think that's part of the problems. We get sucked into not only the symptoms, but the short-termism with that. Because the reality is people want quick fixes and the, to, to, to reverse that slide of centralization that you talked about by zooming out over that time frame, we have to realize that that accumulation of power and centralization has taken a long time to achieve. And I think a lot of the problems we're facing right now are a, a bubbling of a, of a very slow burning, a bubbling, a boiling problem. And it's, it's, it, to, to tackle root cause issues requires patience and a long-term view, yeah. it, at least... And, and I've been studying the history of transformation. And the reality is that in our communication, we almost need to give people the, the belief that change is possible, firstly, as Ke uh, um, hopefully future President Kennedy gave. Uh, but the, um, but the, the sense that, that, that there is something that we can do right now to, to move towards that change, because without that temporal association of something that's immediate to us, people defect to these symptomatic issues, as you've alluded to. 
and and that's the hard challenge and also the incentive structures within the digital media and uh, we've been talking anytime we put out like an alarm a piece of content that that raises concern about a pressing issue gosh our viewer numbers go through the roof you know when we talk about something that's urgent 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 but that then leads to everything being urgent everything being breaking news because everyone's trying to get their message heard rather than taking the step back and having the nuanced conversation about the real problems and understanding the complexities that have led to that problem and the probable unfortunate complexities of solving that problem even if we can distill it down to simple steps so i think it's so important that we don't get distracted by those symptomatic issues we stay focused on the root cause but we find a way to bring a, a sense of immediacy without alarmism so that we don't replicate the same problems that we're actually standing against because it's easy to start becoming the alarmists ourselves yes uh, there's been a, a, a it's been a problem in the skeptical movement the covid skeptic movement let's call it um that there are these figures who who do exactly the same thing they fabricate crises um this is you know, on, on, on one level, you sort of want to respect somebody who's pointing to uh, uh, you know, warning about uh, the, the potential existential risk around um, using one novel therapy for everybody at the same time. That's just a, that, that does strike me, you know, as a conservative person, that strikes me as just a foolish idea to take a new therapy and inject everybody on the planet with it. That, that you know, if there's a long-term risk that we hadn't worked out, then we've just done a very stupid thing. But on the other hand, I don't like this tendency of people to have one little pet theory as to how that existential risk is going to come to pass. The Heer van der Bosch's and uh, Zev Zelenko's may rest in peace of the, of the world. Um, I, I just intuitively step back from them. And... I, I think it's important to maintain a compass. Do I think that the vaccines ought never to have been approved, um, ought only to have been used in um, a small percentage of the population if they had to be approved? Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm against these things. I'm very skeptical. In fact, I've become skeptical about the entire vaccine construct because mm -hmm. I've, as I've delved into this, I've realized just how much of it is propaganda and how little of it is science. Mm. But putting that aside, I mean, my, my concern is that we, we see in the COVID skeptic movement a lot of promotion of extreme voices and a lot of shouting at moderate voices. And that's something that I would like to see more, more people resisting. Yes. Yes, and I think it results in a, a greater degree of openness. And actually, the point you've raised about scale variants, bringing that into this mm. conversation is important because actually, whether we're talking about progressivism, progressing, change, change <laughs> or whether we're talking about conserving something, <clears throat> it, most people would agree that we need an element of both. And, 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 to, and also, to your point, in my household here too, I, you know, I want us all to have you know, the access to the same things. But I also recognize that, that I have to bring out some level of inner authoritarian to my son who is learning life, you know, but I also similarly have to create the conditions for him to self-discover. And it's, 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 it's the harmony of that. And I think that scale variance concept is so important because, you know, the idea of being completely individualistic freedom orientated is something that has appeal but at the same time you know you, you want the best for your family and hopefully the best for your community and the, you know the person at the street who's homeless you know hopefully you would want to help them to find favorable conditions you'd, you'd want to see deprivation in your area taken care of and that requires a greater degree, degree of uh, community-led change a greater degree of social awareness but I agree with you, the further you zoom out, that's when, so it's, it's a lens and it's, it's a continuum. And mm. to, to, to take this reductionist view that it's either this or that, 
it is, it is to me a part of the whole game where the whole game has gone wrong. It's to, the, the big part for me is and both. <laughs> it's, 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 not, it's not either or, it's and yeah. both. And it's about yeah. the, co- the context and the scale. And I, I think the, 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 to find that thin wedge of, 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 of recognizing the problems also requires us to bring those nuances into the conversation because a lot yeah. of the fighting is done on the basis of, oh, you're being hyper-individualistic or you're being a socialist or a communist. We have to recognize the, the, the terrain and the territory, the role the terrain and the territory plays in, and the context in that conversation. Yeah, um, you know, th- th- that's what polarization is about, is, is turning, uh, turning N-shaped curves into U-shaped curves, um, small N, small U. Um, <clears throat> the, the, this idea that optimality is found at an extreme is, uh, is very unlikely, right? I mean, uh, the optimality is found somewhere in the middle. And, um, and, and so you know, things are worse at the extremes and then get better somewhere. And uh, you can ask whether it's sort of over here or over here. Um, but um, we, we don't have enough people who are able to say, okay, well, there's on, on the other side, I see the points you're making um and and i they're 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 they're, they're valid they're they they definitely are incorporated in the set of forces that converge on this very complex problem that we are engaging in and so i i see that you know and so, let, let's i mean the one i i let's let's talk about something non-covid something non-centralization for a second i, I referenced abortion earlier you know what astonishes me about it is that to to say yes abortion is something i want to m- minimize but not something I want to outlaw is, is at the moment to alienate nearly everybody. <laughs> you know? um, it, it seems that people are, you know, if, you, if you're in a debate or something like that, it's either like, no, abortion should be illegal, should never be happening, we should never be killing babies, or uh, abortion should be um, free for everybody without any questions and 14-year-olds should be able to do without their parents' um, uh, permission. It, it's a, it's my body, my choice. You know, but the the thing, the idea of saying, look, I want to minimize it. It's a, it's not something I'm comfortable with. I don't like it. I want less of it. But I also do not want to see ridiculous destruction in people's mm-hmm. lives mm-hmm. Um, because of yeah, you know, you name the list. Yes, the list of, yes, is long. yes, yeah. yes, yes. Do, do it feels know? to me like we're living within an inverted bell curve. You know, because actually. You know the normal distribution you would be able to have you know that you, it, it brings us to that cent- yeah. center point where that's that's where the kind of normal range is yeah but it, it feels like the complete inversion of that where we're now at the two extremes and that creates that this or that mentality yeah. it creates the the us versus their mentality it creates the i support the current thing versus i oppose the current thing uh, and mm. it, it leaves me thinking how do we restore that normal distribution you know, how do we bring normality in, in a world where the extreme is what gets attention? <laughs> it's it's incentivized, it gets the clicks, it gets the views, it gets the shares. But I, and as I watched the WHO debate in, in, in Britain, there was a very hyper ideological, sensational rant on anti-vaxxers, and conspiracy theorists in the first, in the opening gambit before we'd even got into the conversation around the WHO and the treaty straight away. But that was then followed by a politician called Danny Kruger, who in a very calm, he's been working with us for them, a very calm, genteel voice then brought reason and nuance to the table. And to me, it was a wonderful illustration of what happens when we come back to that reason and that ability to, to have a, a balanced conversation. Yeah, and there's an energetic shift when you're listening to someone who's having that versus this alarmism, this ideological extremism. It's, but it's become so hyper normalized that I think people have lost touch of what it feels like in the way that you, you know, you were, you became lit, you lit up as you were describing the speech yesterday. And I think that that, that we almost need to reconnect with that spirit that comes with that mm-hmm. sense of just, just sensibility in a way yeah common sense dan it's been a fantastic conversation um, indeed yeah uh thank you very much i, I need to move on to my next uh, i'm a few minutes li- late already um sure yes so, absolutely. Yep. yeah but always great chatting to you and uh, all the best with your continued efforts really appreciate what you've done over the last 
couple of years. Likewise, um, likewise, yeah, indeed. We can chat again, and uh, I'm on my way to the UK again in June, by the looks of things. So, um, hopefully, we'll connect again in in face to face, and uh, yes. with any number of other warriors of the skeptical variety. Indeed, thanks, thanks, Nick. Great to see you again. Enjoy your evening, and uh, yeah, really appreciating you being here, and see you again soon. And to audience at home, please do check out the Panda website and keep up to date with what Nick, Nick and Co are keeping up with. Uh, this is an enormously important conversation and I'll see you all again very soon.